Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Teresa Neat, who is a Director of Quality Engineering at Slalom Build and co-organizer and coach of DevOps Girls. Teresa is also a contributor to the book, 97 Things Every Cloud Engineer Should Know, that was recently published by O'Reilly Media. Teresa joins us today from Melbourne, Australia. Teresa Neat, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Hey, Robbie, thanks for having me. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of well-maintained software? Well-maintained software is software that others can maintain. This is, I know that is very succinct, but it means that other people can work on the code that you've written, which means that it needs to be readable and it needs to be able to make sense to people. And in that sense, Part of readability means to me that it has tests around it. And this is where we come full circle to my role in in quality engineering. So definitely maintainable software is something that I care about and makes my life a lot easier. Say things, you know, you you touched on like readability or readable um, and having tests around it and being able to make sense of it. Do you have any, have you found that there's any useful ways to measure how readable or how comprehensible some some software can be? There is a, a lot of knowledge on this subject that I will be very careful not to proclaim to be um, an expert on. But one of the things that I have learned in, in my 25 or so years of experience is that the clearly naming conventions make sense clearly size of methods and classes makes sense clearly if you're object oriented uh, clearly the you don't have to pop in a lot of uh, comments but you have to have meaningful annotations or meaningful use of why a decision is taken and if you don't document that somewhere else you need to document that in the code do you think that there's a, a scenario or there's a period of time when code becomes, you know, like I'm always curious about like when does code become legacy code? Like, do you, do you feel like you have like a, a good way to describe that to someone if someone were to ask you that? Like how, how many minutes after it's written does it become legacy or stale code or something? Well, that's a great question. Um, I would tend to say that it, it's legacy almost from the minute it's committed. However, I'll defer to experts like Michael Feathers who define legacy code far better than I do. But I think there's there's a gray area of when code is maintainable and when code is becoming just degraded and unusable. And when it's becoming degraded and unusable is when I call it legacy. Uh, It's interesting, actually, I'll I'll throw in a comment here that um, very often you'll find with legacy code, you also have legacy people. And that's an interesting um, attachment with legacy code is people who are attached to the code and attached to the way that it was produced whenever that was. It could have been a year or two ago, it could have been 15, 20 years ago. That's interesting. And then do you find that you're yourself using the uh, metaphor technical debt very often? 
I use it very often. In my background, I worked for ThoughtWorks, which I know some of your previous speakers have, and we were very well educated on the subject of technical debt, legacy code, uh, good practices, clean practices for producing code. And even if I wasn't writing the code myself, I certainly was exposed to the language and the the mentality. So for sure, technical debt matters and it's something that um, I, I look out for. Have you been in teams where you've seen people maybe use that metaphor maybe in an ineffective way or maybe for labeling it for the wrong type of thing? Oh, for sure. Technical debt can be mislabeled as something that somebody doesn't want to work on. Uh, it could be mislabeled as something that someone else wrote and or you know the funny thing I see these days well maybe not these days but I saw it recently is um, people who have language preferences and uh, they, they get on the language bandwagon and anything that's not written in that language becomes technical debt in their eyes and it unfortunately speaks of um, uh not a very wholesome perspective of the software world in that your preferred language doesn't mean it's the best or the right or the one that everyone else should be going with. So it could be that. It could be people saying, oh, it's it's technical debt because it was written in, I don't know, Ruby or something. As, as someone that actually works in the Ruby on Rails industry in particular, I, I, I haven't actually heard anyone say specifically say technical debt. That would be an interesting, I would be open to having a fun debate about that, I suppose. But I think there's that other aspect of like, I'm always curious about like when frameworks within, regardless of languages, but there's frameworks or tools or libraries that teams might use to build something. And then maybe that framework is no longer being maintained or it's no longer in fashion anymore. And so does that then become technical debt or not? And I think it's it's a gray area for me, I think, in some ways. I'm like, well, is it still doing what it – can you keep working on it? Can you keep producing with it? Like maybe it's not the nice, shiny new thing you want to put on your resume and maybe because that's not going to get you the next job you want, which gets into like something I kind of have labeled resume-driven development. But there is a, but there is a, there's like, can you still be productive with it? Do you understand the code? So like, I think there's a lot of other things that we – developers sometimes struggle with like, well, it's no longer, that's no longer getting the community adoption anymore. So it's, it's legacy code or it's technical debt because we have to get rid of it because there's a new thing that's since replaced it. So, you know, in, in the industry and everybody else seems to be over here now. And so you're kind of always chasing this, what someone else is writing about and, and not all, not all teams have the same budgets, capacity, you know, to just kind of keep following those whims. And a lot of the time that we you know, you always hear about like the big companies that are able to do that and they might have much larger teams where they could like, okay, we're going to have a team go spend the next year rewriting this from this one JavaScript framework and the new, this new JavaScript framework, uh, because we don't want to get up, we want to stay up to date, but then you, but the people with teams of like two or three developers and they're like, we need to do that. And I'm like, are you just going to stop doing anything else on the application for the next year to do that? I'm like, it took them a year and they have 15 to 20 people that worked on it. So Obviously, they might have a much larger application, so I think people could probably nitpick saying that. But it's an interesting thing that I struggle with a little bit on just being like, well, it's not. I don't want to dismiss perfectly fine code that's doing what it's doing. And and technical debt may not. Do you think it is something that always needs to be addressed, or can teams just live with technical debt? Or is there a point where you 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 eventually need to pay that back? Well, it's interesting that people forget that the term is technical debt and 
debt is something that you are paying interest on. And just because it is old and you're not paying interest on it doesn't mean it's a technical debt. If it's, if it's something that you did in a rush, in a hurry, or perhaps something that you had to do to get something done and you knew you made some trade-offs and you labeled those as I'm going to get back to those because they will be biting us if we don't correct those, then we end up with debt. So where we find people use the term technical debt as a weapon, that's when it's incorrectly used. It is used as labeling something that we did in our code, in our technical implementation that is now coming back or has the potential of coming back to bite us. And um, I'll give you an example, actually. Quite recently in in one of my workplaces, um, we had this fabulous pearl piece of software that was actually customer and client facing it was and it was a house of cards and we all knew that we wouldn't touch it because we knew if we touched it the house of cards would just come down but it was making us five million dollars so we left it exactly as it is the minute we had to start maintaining that software and things started going wrong the debt was starting to really show itself and that is the minute where we had to in this case not just refactor it but completely replatform it because pearl was hard and we wanted to put tests around it so it really is about the debt and the interest that you pay on the debt that makes it a technical debt. I want to switch gears a little bit, and I want to dig into um, your role in because I don't think that a lot of people that are maybe listening are familiar with it. So, or maybe have heard it but don't quite know what it means. So, so for those that might be listening that are unfamiliar with the role of a quality engineer, could you share a bit about what that looks like on a day to day? basis? Like, what are you, what are you doing as a quality engineer? And then I've got plenty of topics and conversations I want to dig deeper in on that. I suspect some of the other questions you have will be answered in, in my reply, but a quality engineer is someone involved in engineering of software who helps build in and maintain and provide feedback on quality. And it means that Unfortunately, in our industry, and, you know, like I said, I've been around for about 25 years, we all started as uh, just click and verify testers. And I call these people battery hens of testers. They all sit in a row and they churn out tests and they churn out test results. And this has unfortunately scarred and marred the, the value that you could Bring in providing valuable feedback, which is what testing is. So this is where the industry and the uh, career of software testing started. And then we had it evolve into this thing, which is an American term called quality assurance, QA. And QA too is a misnomer because QA implies that you can verify that something works perfectly at the end. You can assure quality. And just by virtue of having this role, you've assured quality and you can go live. That too is dangerous and super loaded. So I'm comfortable calling myself either a quality analyst or a quality assistant, if you want to use the word or the acronym QA. And this is actually my, my, my first preference is quality engineer, QE, which is somebody who's involved in the entire life cycle of software who then helps 
identify what can be tested and should be tested and not because others can't but because they bring an objective and a critical lens to the table that perhaps someone who's writing software doesn't have and as you're involved throughout the life cycle from the get-go from the inception of the work right through to kicking off pieces of individual features to building a CI-CD system or a CI pipeline right through to all the way to the end where we have monitoring and alerting in production, which is also a form of testing. So I see quality engineering uh, and a quality engineer as someone who's involved in the entire life cycle from go to woe. And so a quality engineer you know, is doing more than, you know, click testing or just verifying that a, a set of features or functionality is doing what, the, like the story or what, however the team organizes the work that needs to be done, um, what the deliverable should look like, uh, make sure that things are still working. You're, so you're getting more involved earlier on in the process. Are you part of the story creation part of the process at that level as well? And then and I'm, I'm always curious about like a much larger team. So I work on a you know much smaller scale consultancy world and where like what, what roles are outlining a user story? Like where does that come in with you got like, you know, user experience people, you got your, you know, the developers, you've got quality engineers and these different product owners and all the different people that are part of these conversations. Um, I'm assuming some of that probably comes from product, the product team kind of outlining what the, their expectations are. So where, where, do, where do you kind of fit into that conversation life cycle there? Yeah, we, we certainly do need a little bit of structure to make this work. Otherwise, we'll all be stepping on each other's toes. But I say that our roles currently are T-shaped and we have a, a degree of generalization, which is the horizontal bar of the T. And then you have to be specialized. Everyone has to be specialized in something, and that's the vertical bar of the T. And if you have everyone on your team who is T-shaped, you then have somebody who comes along and is the specialist in UX, and that is their specialization. And you really, you can't function without them. You could generalize if you needed to. You could kind of keep up if you needed to, but you need them. On a tangent while I'm speaking about this, I've seen people try and do without business analysts recently to try and be lean, quote unquote. And the unfortunate part of cutting out the analyst in the conversation and the defining of the actual requirements, which of course a user won't know until they've had the conversation with the analyst. If you cut out the analyst, everyone else who's now a generalist in the subject think that they can define what the user needs and they can really extract it from them. And you end up with substandard requirements and substandard user stories that then end up to my detriment in testing and in, in, in QE, I then find bugs later on, which we could have we could have found earlier, but we didn't have an analyst. So, you know, just on into your topic of does everyone do everything? Um, no, we actually, and I don't, I can't for a minute proclaim to do what they do, but I have enough generalist knowledge to keep up. And do you think that's, you were kind of, I appreciate you kind of outlining the kind of the his, history of like testing and maybe not assuring quality, but um Value, you know, making sure there is quality deliverables getting pushed out and or delivered to the end users. 
you know, you know, a, a lot of I come from a world of software development where there's been a lot of emphasis on automated testing as being this thing you go for, and like then you don't necessarily maybe need someone manually clicking around because that just seems like a waste of cycles to do something that's very repetitive, right? Like, okay, well, if someone can click on these buttons, it should still work, you know, should still do this at the end of it. So what do you say to teams that are thinking that people might be listening be like, oh, I don't understand why we would need like a human to do those things that are, I can just write tests for. I know what the, the, the user story says, this should happen. I can write some automated tests that do that. And it says it's doing it. So where, do, where is this other person coming into the picture there? Would you be surprised that that's not the first time I've heard this question? <laughs> so I'm sure not. <laughs> there is backtrack a bit. You you cannot do without humans, no matter what. You need humans, and uh, we see in the industry some sometimes reactive hysteria around. Oh my goodness, machines are going to take over the world. It's almost like we, we you know we did this a hundred years ago, but now here we are again. Oh my goodness, AI is going to take over the world, and we're all going to be done out of jobs and. Um, in the testing world, I've heard it said as well, oh, well, if we're going to have AI do all the testing, um, then clearly I'm going to be out of a job and I need to fight for my job. In the same vein, when you speak about automated tests, they're a tool of rapid, immediate, repetitive feedback. But you cannot do that with a human. And this is why we need automated testing to remove the repetitive tasks from humans. We still need the human to do the analysis. We still need the human to look at the output and see what coverage we have. We need to look at a human to perform the tasks that intelligent human beings can, which a machine will not be able to do, not in my lifetime. I don't see this occurring in my lifetime. And I definitely see if, for instance, we need to do a manual test, be sure that it's a test that a machine couldn't do. And then if you have a machine who does, you know, a test pyramid fan over here, if we have a, a test pyramid being applied in full and whole heap of unit tests and service or integration tests that provide a lot of feedback and confidence, then you only need a little bit of UI tests, if any, and then you need to determine, and this is where intelligence is applied, if any manual or human tests need to be done. And I will say in, in my estimation, we will never not need a human. We'll always need a human. I would agree with that as well. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking about these scenarios where I think it's it kind of gets into this interesting abstract area where I feel like, well, if someone's going to, if a human needs to test this, and let's say someone were watching over their shoulders and like say writing a script out of what they're watching that person do, then that I would think develop people listening might be like, well, couldn't we over time we watched and they, they did it the same way a couple of times? Couldn't we automate that procedural process? But I think you're probably touching on a like. Uh, maybe doing something that's a little bit maybe less predictable with how you're testing and doing the things you wouldn't expect a user to do. Because I think we always, you know, I think developers will, you, you know, you test the happy path, the things that like, if everything goes the way it's supposed to go, this should be work. And like, well, why would someone ever do that? You never, you know, it's like, those are always those weird edge case things that are hard to be like, well, our test suite is passing yet a user still encountered some weird bug. Like we don't, how, how the heck did that happen? And I don't know that, do you feel like this helps catch more of those types of things or is it, do you think those are okay too? Cause that's just like what happens with software too. But I think there's just like an interesting 
level, I think people may be trying to like, and I, I struggle with them myself a little, admittedly, it was been like, okay, it's just gets into this abstract idea of like, what are you thinking about that I couldn't think about? And I think it gets into that back to the whole, you were talking about the T-shape thing. It's like, oh, am I just overgeneralizing what someone like you does in your role? And like, can we automate some of that? And like to save you from needing to do that. And then I think it's not always clear how to think about the things that we're not, we're not, you know, observing because we're not sitting there, you know, watching you do that day in and day out. Yes. Interesting reflection here that I've heard some people oversimplify testing and the role of a tester to represent the user. And I'll just touch on that subject quickly because you do far more than represent the user. Your user, your customer is the entire team. And that includes people who build the software and implement and maintain the software. And this is where DevOps comes into the conversation. These are all your customers and quality as defined by them is also quality and therefore you care about that. So you you apply that lens through the entire life cycle and user is one of the lenses that you apply I am I'm not that fatalistic about bugs being found in production. I I take it as a learning experience. I'm far more interested in how quickly we respond to bugs and not make it a, a big incident and a big event and something that people will try and dance around and try and minimize, but let's quickly respond to it. So let's have our recovery processes far better uh, engineered than our, oh my goodness, we found a bug and we have to blame somebody, which is unfortunately what occurs in some environments. Bugs happen and it's okay. It's good. But I think back to your point though, it's like how quickly can you as a team or organization respond to those things? How quickly can you understand, wrap your head around like what happened under the hood and like trying to figure out like it could be a weird data thing. There's a lot of things that you can't predict what happened. And so, you know, over the last, I feel like year or two, observability has been a big topic in the industry. And I know a lot of people myself that have, you know, like I've spoken with a number of people about it, but I'm, I don't know that I'm actually interfacing with any tools that might be considered observability outside of companies rebranding themselves as having a monitoring tool that they now call observability. But I don't know if that's actually the same thing. So how does observability play into kind of your role? Does Is that like a, a resource that you've been able to leverage and help do more than you could have done five plus years ago? I actually wish that I could have. I, a colleague and I tried to bring observability into a team that we worked on about two years ago. Um, he is a big Honeycomb fan. We had charity majors come over and talk to us. Um, and he is a system engineer and I was the, the QA lead. And we tried to bring observability into our, not just the company, but into our team. And it, it didn't quite succeed. We were met with more interest in repairing things after you found them than future-proofing things. And observability, and I will not proclaim to be an expert, is about Again, maintainable software and readability and making your software and its behavior observable so that you can learn from it and respond to it. Um, I am personally, based on what I know, a big fan. I can't say that I've used it yet, but boy, do I want to. Well, I hope you get a chance to do that at some point. And I had Charity Majors on, which was actually one of the first one of the first few guests on the show. So if anyone's curious about that, go back and look in the, the show archives there. 
you know, on the coding side of things, uh, engineers often talk about like code to test ratios as a useful measurable metric. What are some ways that teams are able to say measure quality? Quality can be measured depending on which stakeholder you're speaking to. Um, we have uh, some people who measure quality as the number of tests that have passed. It's not a metric I use. Uh, some people use the metric of number of bugs found. And interestingly, I found that some people use the metric of bugs found throughout the life cycle, which is actually a contraindication because the more bugs we find, the better our feedback loops and processes are. And I'm far more interested in finding the bugs during the production of the software and not using that as a stick, using that as an encouragement to, hey, look how good our processes are that we found this bug. So when you ask me about a metric for quality, it is subjective and it's always based on the person or the stakeholder who is asking the question. I would say it would come roughly to the four DORA metrics and your ability to respond to issues, how fast you deliver software, how robust your um, recovery processes are. I will add on just my own thought on that. I don't feel that major incidents in production should be unnoticed. I think major incidents in production, particularly severity one or priority one uh, incidents should be recorded as a reflection on perhaps our feedback processes, but definitely on our quality. And would you, in like these types of, in these environments that you're often working in, for whatever reason, the the regions goes down for you know a half hour, and, and there's a big outage, and it causes like. Do you consider that to be like a mark on the quality because you haven't yet taken the step to have some more redundancy with other regions so that can like nicely fail over? Or is that something you would consider as part of the quality? Yeah, yeah, I do. I wholeheartedly feel that anything that occurs beyond our control is still a learning experience for us. And if, and yeah, this is a really good case in point, we had an AZ go down. We, we were deployed in one AZ. We had that AZ go down. It was very quick to hear the rhetoric on, oh, that's AWS's fault and we have to, you know, blame, blame, blame. And if we were to use the full resilience model and um, full disclosure, big fan of John Olspor. If we talk about the system that failed, we have to go beyond blaming somebody and we have to look at the system that failed. And in our case, our resilience failed. We failed to have a multiple AZ deployment. So it's, yeah, okay. So things break, you know, and AWS had something happen and but we should have thought about that. And so we learn from it. We don't use it as a blame experience. We learn from it. And hopefully we build in some tests. By the way, on tests, I feel that we have to always test the bugs we find. So if we find a bug in production, and that could be a whole AZ going down, afterwards write a test to catch that before it occurs. What, what might a test look like that look like for that type of um, example there? I'm guessing that wouldn't be ne maybe necessarily on the say the application level. Like where else might test exist to validate that things are working? Is this as simple as like 
uptime monitoring type things or checking that an endpoint is existing or something? To me, the immediate thought that came to mind was chaos engineering. And we have to have a firm use of chaos engineering, perhaps not during key production times, but we have to have chaos engineering being applied so that we can recover from disasters and chaos monkey being one of them. It could be applied and we could see what occurs when disaster strikes and how do we respond to that. For those listening that might not be familiar with chaos engineering, could you give us a quick little intro to that? Well, briefly, it's my third hand interpretation of chaos engineering is letting loose chaos in your system. And if you're more comfortable, have it applied to your test system, not your production system and see whether, and I said chaos monkey before, it's a tool that could be applied. It could actually wreak havoc in your system and you want to see how it breaks things down, maybe disables functions, maybe disables uh, integration points. How do you respond to that? It's chaos and it's not predictable, which is the best part. We'll be back with our interview with Teresa in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these discussions valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and a writing review on Apple Podcasts. Also, do you know someone that I should be speaking with and interviewing on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, back to our interview with Teresa Neat. You know, uh, I'm also curious, you know, touching back, we touched a little bit on like, where you said that quality assurance isn't something that we can really assure. You can't really assure quality. And I'm, I'm, I'm willing to go along with that kind of concept. But I also know a lot of people listening are also like, well, we have QA people on our team. Am I supposed to like now think like you were, you're, you've got the wrong title and we need, and you should go advocate for having a conversation about something that I heard about on a podcast. And I'll definitely link to some of your, uh, your talks and stuff like that about this as well. But for those listening that might be hearing that and thinking like, well, how should I have a conversation with my team about this? So like to address this and like get into more of a, they might think it might be a philosophical question about what is quality and how do we kind of approach it as a team? What advice could you offer them? Yeah, the the ship has sailed, unfortunately. You're absolutely right. And people are tied to their titles and they feel that there's some degree of importance in what they do. I would say begin with empathy. Understand that people have feelings and they have identities associated with the titles. So we're not going to say in in one fell swoop, well, you are now completely and utterly out of a title and you will no longer assure quality because that is not how it works. We want to be able to have an empathetic conversation around what your title could evolve to, and I draw some of my positions and opinions from the work of Deming and Lean and, you know, way back when to Teichi Ono and the Toyota production system and the Lean manufacturing system. And one of the things that Deming said, and please excuse my poor paraphrase, but he said that quality 
is already in the system. It's already there. It's how you respond to it. So we can have the conversation more around the purpose and the function of the role and hoping that the title then evolves as a result of the conversation. But it's always about having the empathetic conversation first. Given that the audience is primarily people producing code, how closely does quality engineer work with producing code? Are they, do they participate in pull requests, as an example? Yes. Typically in my company, Slalom Build, we have quality engineers who are extremely code savvy and who do write code. And you could find a scenario where they pair with a developer to write the test code and they could be involved in pull requests and committing to to trunk and all of the all of the things but we also in the same sort of vein of empathy and eq we also understand not everyone has been on that journey and so we bring them along the journey to what part of this conversation are you comfortable having and how would you like to grow your technical skills? Someone who doesn't arrive with the technical skills, I'm far more interested in their critical thinking and their questioning skills and their ability to learn than their ability to write code. Because like I said, you could be a battery hen churning out tests, but does it mean anything is more important. Hmm. And that kind of leads into one of my last few questions here. And then, so let's imagine that there's a few pe- people listening here that are part of a team that is starting to have some conversations about some of the brittle aspects of their software infrastructure and are wondering, maybe we should finally hire a QA person to come in and test features before we deploy them. Uh, what recommendations would you offer them on how to like navigate that, those conversations before they decide to go put up a job ad? Yeah, it's it's certainly something that you see occurring. Um, I, I wrote a blog post on it probably a year ago, uh, six months ago, and the title of the, the post is Testing and Quality Correlation Does Not Equal Causation. And I point everyone to this blog post all the time because it actually started from one of my managers saying to me, oh, my goodness, we found some bugs. We need to hire more QAs. I was very, very quick to look at his processes instead. So, you know, to actually answer your original question is, please read my blog post to anyone who wants to go and hire a QA to improve your quality. Uh, Testing and, and quality are not actually causatively associated. Testing is a form of feedback that tells you how good your quality is. That's all. It's what you did to produce that that actually produces the quality and how you respond to that, that improves your quality. The testing itself on its own is a form of feedback. So I would say people have to not just copy the industry, but do your research on what your actual issue is and then find out how to resolve that as, a, as opposed to applying a hammer to a nail because we see an issue. That's interesting. I think about, you know, some of the conversations I've had with some various teams that we've provided some consulting to is that when they're trying to bring in like a QA person and because of that type of exact ex- direct example, there's another part of it's always like, well, you know, kind of speaking to what you're saying is the quality that's coming out of what the development team is producing 
due to some other issues, like maybe there's not enough developers or maybe you have, you're missing some skill sets with them and there's some training and like, they're like, oh, we can do that and like over time do that. But we need someone to like, someone to, so we need we need more people to at least make sure that we're not pushing out anything so it's more of like a protect whatever's like maybe the 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 lackluster things that are coming out of the team it's like what can we do to reduce the risk that there won't be too much of it and i'd rather get some of that pushed back into the team like up oh, you missed something and that's their way of thinking that they're going to help train their developers because they're getting that feedback loop Whereas they're not getting it themselves when they're testing their own code and everything and testing the work they're doing. Like, oh, and you know, you might get something that goes through a pull request, you get a couple of developers looking at it, maybe even paired on it, and you'll still push it over to someone that does some QA or user acceptance testing, depending on how your team's structured and everything. And then get things get like, well, you missed a few things, or this didn't quite work the way we expected it, which is you want that feedback loop, right? So, and that's a way of educating the developers by having someone that's responsible for protecting the the you know the end user or the business and, and you know you mentioned that there's i keep referring to it from the lens of the user or the user lens with all these different aspects of just thinking about the the output the quality of the output that's coming out of the team absolutely it's when you hire a qa to fix your problem of low quality it is a reactive and an after the fact response what you should be thinking about is hiring a qa as an equality analyst you should hire them to help improve your quality as you produce it not as you try and hammer it in at the end you can't it's gone it's too late do it earlier so for those listening that are, let's say they're going to move forward and they're going to hire a QA or a QE, but they don't have anyone else on the team that kind of has ever existed in that role, what sort of traits would you recommend them looking for in someone? If, especially if it's like, they're like, well, it's a team of engineers, maybe it's a startup that's co-founder is, this, you know, is a, was an engineer and they've hired more software developers and like, okay, we, we, we need to get a little bit more mature as a team here, but they don't know exactly like, well, I don't ever worked with someone like that specifically. So what recommendations could you have on like what sort of traits they should be seeking in someone? Great question. I have done a bit of hiring in my life and I have found very often that resumes that are presented to me, the ones of the people who meet certain buzzword compliance. um, And if you just flood your resume with buzzwords, then you'll eventually get hired. But what I actually hire for is four main things. First is you have to have a technical interest. You may not be a coder right now, but you must love technology and you have to have a strong interest. The other one is system thinking. And system thinking is to see the big picture and is to see the connection between things and the interaction between things. And this is why people love working with QAs and the questions they ask is because they can see things that you can't. They see the system. The other one is critical thinking. So the ability to think critically and to not be swayed emotionally by a color or a behavior or try and keep your bias out of it. And I know it's hard. We can't keep our biases out of what we do, but try and keep your bias out of the picture and look at it critically and ask the questions that matter. And then the fourth point that I hire for is collaboration is the ability to work with others and this is everyone in this entire life cycle of producing the software all the way through right through to production and the people who 
hopefully have not had the codes thrown at them over a wall but are part of the conversation all along, you want to have your QE or your QA person involved in that entire life cycle and have that collaboration. So those are the four things I hire for. Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com referrals. Thanks. I've, I've met a lot of people that are working on teams that have brought in junior developers out of a boot camp and thrown them into a role of being responsible for QA type, type responsible clicker. Cause they're, I think in their, in their mind, like, well, can we just hire like a junior developer? So while they're learning to be a software developer, we can just kind of throw them into the mix and let them try to break things. What do you say to those people? <laughs> Yeah, that's really interesting. Trying to break things is something that um, I also argue against because if it's broken, it's already broken. It's how good you are at finding it that matters. Um, so, but back, back to your question of the poor junior developer who comes out of boot camp and um, they get thrown into the deep end of having to find the bugs, quote unquote. I feel that we do them in injustice and I feel that what you're doing is you're just making them write more code. They're just being another developer. They're not actually being trained to test. I find that the best developers who can test are the ones who have a lot of experience and have the ability to distance themselves and ask the right questions. I wouldn't do that to a junior developer. And it's unfortunate that some people have been demoted, quote unquote, and this is terrible that people think this, into QE or QA from a developer because you're not good enough to write code. That is the last person you want near your code. That's the last person you want writing tests and monitoring your tests. So you want to take responsibility for them and raise them properly as a fully-fledged developer first before you start asking them to now apply another lens of critical thinking and system thinking, which they will just not have. Hmm. Yeah, that's, I think that's some good points there. It, it's, a, it's always interesting thinking about I'm, trying to wrap my head around this more on the, the QE side of things. And now I think the, the, the manual click testing type of approach, cause I've, we bring in interns and things like that. And we've, we've always tried to put them on like real coding projects and not just like, okay, we'll just have them participate in some auxiliary type roles around to provide some support or to test things. Like, I don't think that's necessarily a good way to help get them ready for their first job as a software developer. Right. And it's like, but on the other side, there's also maybe a level of having empathy for the people that are doing that work. And like, well, if it's a lot of, you know, if, but if your team has the, uh, someone in there that, that can show them like to, about these other, you know, these other things you're thinking about, um, 
to think more at a more of a, a holistic level about their the system and the quality and not just being just there just to make sure that the happy path is still working after you know they push some code over and things are approved and it's out on a staging environment before they push it to production or something. So uh, for those listening, I'm, I'm, I, I share Teresa's uh, sentiment that you probably shouldn't do that. Um, put them in an environment where they're actually working on code, but it's also good for everybody to get a chance to like learn how to do things like click tests and knowing that you can then automate some of those manual procedural things. Like if you, cause this, I think there's another way, I think when I've tried to explain testing to some people and like get them, maybe a little bit more excited about the idea is like, well, let's nothing that a developer works on very rarely anyways, is not tested to some degree. Like I, when people say, well, I don't have time to write to write tests. And I'm like, well, how do you know it works? And they're like, well, I tested it. And so it's like, there's, that's usually the response. I'm like, well, that just means you manually tested or you click, click tested it, or you pulled up some console and you made sure your algorithm's working or whatever. You got the number you wanted to respond. So you did test it. Could you take the time to then make that a repeatable automated process so you can get the faster feedback, right? So if you remind them that you're just trying to automate those uh, those manual steps that are prone to human error, you can then see the, the advantage of actually, okay, maybe it's actually not super expensive to write an automated test. I think it's usually just that they don't have the experience and they don't really think about just how expensive it is for them to manually test it each and every time and hope that someone else is going to do that at a, at a different laptop somewhere else when they go and make changes that similar area of the code base. It's, an, it's always an interesting little kind of challenge for people to kind of wrap their head around that. And I don't think it's easy to get people excited about testing if they don't have a lot of training and see the the benefits of what it can do for you when you have the automated testing. But then we get into this confusing thing where the wait, there's then people that are still going to need to manually do some stuff. And so um, I, that's why I wanted to talk with you about that to kind of get a sense that there's there's more to it than just trying to automate everything. But a lot of developers listening probably are still thinking, I still don't understand that, but that's okay. I just want to know that there, there are these other roles out there that are doing making and adding a lot of value to improving the quality of the software that we're producing for the organizations or the users that are using it. So, Well, I'm going to make two comments. First of all is that the value in having a human do testing is the objectivity that they bring. So if you bring someone on who's new to a team, they bring objectivity immediately because they're not emotionally connected to the product yet. So you do get some value in that. It's also a good introduction to what the system is doing or what the software is doing. The other thing is that if you have a developer who is trying to test their own code, it comes with preconceived ideas of what the code is doing and should be doing. And therefore, you always need somebody else to look at it. And this is why I love pair programming and I love the involvement of people with each other's code so that you have a degree of objectivity and critical thinking applied to it. To your question of any last thoughts, I was lucky enough to find the quote that I absolutely butchered earlier on by Deming, and it is, inspection is too late, the quality, good or bad, is already in the product. And I literally work on that. Inspection is too late. Quality occurs earlier, it's already in the product. So this is, this is how I operate in, in the software world. Is there a non technical slash non-software development related book that you find yourself recommending to people in our industry on a regular basis? In our industry, um, I recommend everything that has any sort of 
uh, unfortunately, software-related uh, stories in it. So I, I can't even say non-software-related, but I'm a massive fan of DevOps as a culture and DevOps not just as a tool-based religion as it's become, but more about the culture of DevOps. So I will talk about DevOps until the cows come home. And I will recommend books by Gene Kim or Patrick Dubois or John Willis or any of these people who've been involved in the entire life cycle of DevOps. Um, the DevOps handbook probably comes to mind firstly. Thanks. I'll definitely include links to those in the show notes. And where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software quality online? You can find me on Twitter at Teresa Neat. So you will find my name in the show notes. So Teresa Neat. And you can find me on Medium at Teresa Neat. Well, it's been such a delight having you join us today on Maintainable, Teresa. Thank you so much for talking shop with us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. 